As mentioned at the top of the show, we are now going to speak with Dr. Bill Durston. Dr. Durston is an emergency room physician and is active with Physicians for Social Responsibility. We've been looking to have him on the show for some time, and we're glad that we can finally now say, Dr. Bill Durston, welcome to Radio Parallax. Thanks very much, Doug. I, I want to talk about your essay in the Sacramento News and Review. I know the issue of, uh, of gun control and what's, uh, what's been happening lately is, is something that's very important to you as an ER physician. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I mean, the gun violence and gun-related deaths and injuries in the United States has been described as a shameful epidemic by the past president of the American College of Emergency Physicians. And it's something I've been interested in for quite a while, uh, since my early days when I did a residency in emergency medicine in Fresno and saw a tremendous number of uh, civilian gunshot wounds there. Well, let's talk about how, how bad it is. I don't know if the average person realizes, I'm certainly expecting an emergency room to, to have injured people and people you know, in fights and things like that. Anyone that goes through medical training, I think, sort of gets, gets surprised at how bad it is out there in America. Can you, can you give our listeners some idea of what it's like on a Saturday night in terms of gun violence in America? Depends on which emergency department you're in, but in an urban trauma center emergency department, uh, it's not uncommon at all to see um, civilian gunshot wounds, um, or even multiple civilian gunshot wounds. Um, every year in the United States, uh, on average, approximately 30,000 U.S. civilians are killed by guns. And to put that in perspective, there were 3,000 people killed in the World Trade Center attacks. So every year, 10 times as many people in the United States are killed by guns as were killed during the September 11th terrorist attacks. Um, approximately 80 uh, civilians a day are killed by guns. And to, to make it worse, it's a particular problem in children. Children in the United States are killed by guns at a rate that is 12 times higher than the other leading 25 industrialized countries of the world. So it is indeed a serious uh, public health problem. That's the fatal injuries. There are probably at least two to three times that number non-fatal injuries as well, and many of those are devastating, the spinal cord injuries or traumatic brain injuries, that type of thing. So it is an extremely serious public health problem. Yeah, your, your, uh, your, your essay in the News and Review cited the fact that uh, the Vietnam War lasted 11 years, yet here domestically every two years we see the same number of people killed from guns. That's right. There were about 56,000 U.S. soldiers killed during the entire 11-year Vietnam War. So at 30,000 a year, every two years, more U.S. civilians are killed than all the U.S. soldiers in the entire 11-year Vietnam War. Uh, Dr. Justin, you're, you're a Marine Corps combat veteran in Vietnam. You're a former expert marksman in the Marines. You know a thing or two about weaponry. Um, can you comment a little bit about, about the kind of weapons that are available here in the United States in terms of these assault w weapons and things like that? You know, the uh, definition of an assault weapon um, is uh, well, it's debated, uh, but in California, an assault weapon is defined as uh, uh, a weapon that uh, pistol grip, so it can be fired from the hip, uh, typically has um, some type of device on the barrel, a shroud, so that it doesn't get too hold when you're firing multiple rounds. Fully automatic assault weapons have been banned in the United States for a long time, but with the semi-automatic assault weapons, 
um, with a quick trigger finger, people can fire off like five rounds per second. And also assault weapons are usually defined by the size of their magazine, uh, how many rounds can be stored in a magazine. And magazines that store more than 10 rounds are banned in California. Assault weapons are the most deadly. Um, they're responsible for a fairly high percentage of police officers uh, being killed, but they're not the cause of the greatest number of firearm-related injuries and deaths. Handguns are by far the cause of the most number of firearm-related deaths of civilians in the United States. Handguns account for about somewhere between a third and a half of all firearms sold, but they account for about 80% of all the firearm-related deaths in the United States. Well, your essay talks about three myths that you hear. I mean, certainly gun control is talked about all the time. And, of course, now uh, with this recent shooting at Virginia Tech, it's in the news again. Can you go through uh, three of these myths that you described it about, uh, about you know, guns in America? Sure. You know, the first myth, and all three of these myths are really perpetuated by the gun lobby, and particularly the National Rifle Association. The one you hear frequently from the National Rifle Association is that the United States owes its freedom and its democratic form of government to an armed citizenry, the idea that that was the basis for the American Revolution. Well, in fact, a very, a very small percentage of the population owned firearms at the time of the American Revolution. Um, guns didn't work that well back in those days. They were expensive. Most people couldn't afford them, and they uh, were difficult to repair. Um, when the revolution started, we actually got most of our firearms from France. And after the revolution was over, uh, most of the people who had the guns had no further use for them and turned them back in. So we don't uh, owe our firearms to the fact that uh, the men who fought in the revolution retained their guns. We owe their our uh, we don't owe our democracy to that. We owe our democracy to the fact that they retained their ideals after the revolution. Right. I I, I was also I was shocked here to. Uh... To see your quote from uh, the late Supreme Court Justice uh, Warren Burger about the second myth, about, about the wording in the Second Amendment, uh, Warren Burger called it, uh, called the interpretation of the NRA a fraud. That's right. Um, you know, we hear over and over, Second Amendment gun rights. And in fact, from political candidates during the 2004 presidential election, both President Bush and John Kerry said they support, quote, Second Amendment gun rights. With the whole wording of the Second Amendment is a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And the Supreme Court uh, has repeatedly interpreted that wording as meaning that the collective people, in other words, the people of the states, have a right to maintain well-regulated militias, which are basically the state National Guards not that each and every citizen has an unfettered right to own guns. And as you said, the late Supreme Court uh, Chief Justice Warren Burger said that the misrepresentation of the Second Amendment by the gun lobby was one of the greatest pieces of fraud on the American people that he had ever seen in his lifetime. And Warren Burger was not exactly a flaming liberal. No, he wasn't, <laughs> absolutely. And... Uh, he, you know, ruled on one of these cases that was brought to the Second Amendment uh, where someone claimed that they should have their gun back uh, because of the Second Amendment. And uh, when the attorneys said, you know, according to the Constitution, uh, you know, this person has a right to own a gun, Warren Burger said, which Constitution are you speaking of? It's not the Constitution of the United States. 
Well, let's talk about myth number three, uh, that, that, that it's a good idea to have a gun in your home for protection. And if people take home anything from this program, I think that's the most important from a personal basis. The myth is, you know, honest citizens should have guns to protect them. Well, the fact is that guns in the home of honest citizens are much more likely to be used or to kill or injure somebody in the household than to protect against an attacker. One of the best studies on this subject was published in the prestigious New England Journal of Medicine, and that study showed that for every one time a gun in the home was used to kill an attacker, there were 43 gun-related deaths of household members. Most of those are suicides. Um, smaller percentage were homicides, where in a moment of anger, instead of somebody punching somebody and giving them a bloody nose, pulled out the gun and shot and killed them. And then the third category, of course, uh, is accidental deaths from accidental shootings. Well, Dr. Driscoll, the devil is often in the details. A lot of people, would, would, after what's been happening in this country, would say we certainly need better and more controls. But um, how do we go about that? What would you like to see in terms of uh, legislation enacted to make us more like other nations? Well, you know, the general, uh, my general statement is that we should adopt the same types of sensible regulations that other countries that have a tiny fraction of the rate of gun-related deaths and injuries that we have uh, have already enacted. Those include licensing and registration. Uh, just like a car, you have to pass some sort of competency test uh, to get a license to have the gun and then register the gun. Some uh, sort of proof that you have a, a reason to have a gun, and that's uh, the situation in Canada, for example, our neighbors to the north, where they have a much lower rate of gun-related deaths and injuries. Uh, I believe they actually require a letter from uh, some uh, friends or associates saying that, uh, you know, you're stable and have a, have a reason to have a gun. Certainly a ban on assault weapons. that They have no legitimate uh, sporting purpose. Really weapons of war. Exactly. Yeah. They are weapons of mass destruction. Yeah. Now, California still has its assault weapon bans in place, but uh, one of the few meaningful pieces of legislation passed by Congress was the assault weapons ban, uh, the federal government was the assault weapons ban that was enacted in 1994. They left that lapse in 2004. Certainly we need a federal assault weapons ban. Even though in California we have the ban in place, assault weapons are easily transported uh, across state lines. What about a national database? In the case of this Virginia Tech shooter, I mean, everyone, but everyone seemed to think this guy was a potential shooter. He had mental problems, and yet uh, the data, uh, which perhaps could have prevented him from, from getting a gun, was, was not effective. You're right. And that uh, brings up another uh, important piece of federal legislation, which was the Brady Act, which was also enacted in uh, 1994, and that requires a background check before sale of guns. Um, the uh, background checks and the criteria in the Brady Act are relatively weak compared to background checks in the law in California. And there's some question as to whether even under the Brady Act, um, the shooter in the Virginia Tech massacre should have been prevented. But the effectiveness of that instant background check depends on states uh, reporting in this case, when a patient is committed involuntarily uh, because of mental reasons, uh, reporting to the federal database. And uh, this 
particular very disturbed individual who had been committed involuntarily to uh, psychiatric care had not been reported, and there's some question as to whether he really should have been or not, whether he really met the uh, Brady criteria. But certainly uh, background checks for uh, firearm purchasers are necessary, and they're effective. Um, in the 10 years after the enactment of the Brady Act, even though it is somewhat weak, there was about a 28% decline uh, in firearm-related deaths uh, in our country. So we need uh, more stringent background checks. We need uh, better enforcement uh, of the background checks to make sure that the data is being reported uh, as required. We're talking to Dr. Bill Durston in regards to his essay in the Sacramento News and Review, It's the Guns. And hope this won't be your last appearance uh, on the program. Uh, I hope we'll have you on again uh, sometime soon. Thanks, Doug. It's my pleasure. Thanks very much for having me on the program. Dr. Bill Durston is an emergency physician, and he was recently a candidate for office in the 3rd Congressional District here in California. As I say, we hope to get Dr. Durston on this program last November, and uh, I'm glad that, uh, you know, in this case, it's better late than never. We think that uh, Physicians for Social Responsibility do a, a great job, and we uh, plan to have a representative on this program in the future. And speaking of uh, insanity, nuclear and otherwise, uh, I was, uh, I guess, amused, for lack of a better word, at the um, report in yesterday's Sacramento Bee that the good people down at Lawrence Livermore Laboratory took a look and decided that if we cut down all the world's forests, this might help the global warming circumstance. This evidently was based on one of their computer models that, uh, from what I can read in the Bee, suggested that forests are absorbing heat and raising temperatures around the globe. You know, when I, when I walk in a forest, I usually observe that it's, that it's actually quite cool. So I'm wondering if this is a case of garbage in, garbage out down there at Lawrence Livermore. And by the way, these are the good people that, uh, that brought you some other good ideas in the past, including among them the hydrogen bomb. This might be a good point to comment uh, on um, an article, a review in the New Scientist magazine, the April 14th issue on a couple books out on Albert Einstein. Reviewer Andrew Robinson took a look at uh, two books, Einstein on Politics, His Private Thoughts and Public Stands on Nationalism, Zionism, War, Peace, and the Bomb, edited by David Rowe and Robert Schulman, and also the recent book by Walter Isaacson titled Einstein, His Life and Universe. I want to quote a bit from the review. Uh, in, a, in a way, this is referring to, uh, I think, physicists for social responsibility. Noted the article. In February 1950, a few months after the Soviet Union exploded its first atomic bomb, and just after President Truman announced that the U.S. would accelerate the production of a super, parentheses, hydrogen bomb, Albert Einstein went on nationwide U.S. television to drop his own bombshell. I never heard about this episode. Einstein went on American TV and said, If these efforts should prove successful, radioactive poisoning of the atmosphere, and hence annihilation of all life on Earth, will have been brought within the range of what is technically possible. Einstein also warned that, quote, tremendous financial power is being concentrated in the hands of the military. Youth is being militarized, and the loyalty of citizens, particularly civil servants, is carefully supervised by a police growing more powerful every day. Notes the article on the very next day, J. Edgar Hoover, director of the FBI, sent a top-secret memo to every FBI office in the country requesting any and all, quote, derogatory information, unquote, they had on Einstein. 
Hoover's efforts to prove that the world's most famous scientist was a communist sympathizer, perhaps even an atom spy like the recently arrested Klaus Fuchs, and to have him deported from his adopted country would continue for the rest of Einstein's life. The article notes that uh, Einstein scholars and biographers have tended to downplay their subject's political activism in favor of his awe-inspiring scientific achievements and tumultuous personal life, but that uh, these recent books really delve into some of this, uh, and and it's high time someone did. And uh, speaking of a long overdue uh, look at something, we would like to again compliment Bill Moyers, one of our favorites on this program, for his current effort on PBS titled Buying the War. In this multi-part series, Bill Moyers takes a look back at the rather catastrophic failings of the United States media in the ramp-up to war uh, in Iraq to present a balanced view. As we've talked about many times in this program, the media in this country basically acted as a tool of the government in disseminating misinformation. Let me quote a bit from the special. Four years ago on May 1st, President Bush landed on the aircraft carrier USS Lincoln wearing a flight suit and delivered a speech in front of a giant mission-accomplished banner. He was hailed by media stars as a breakthrough example of presidential leadership in toppling Saddam Hussein. Despite profound questions over the failure to locate weapons of mass destruction and the increasing violence in Baghdad, many in the press confirmed the White House's claim that the war was won. MSNBC's Chris Matthews declared, we're all neocons now. NPR's Bob Edwards said, the war in Iraq is essentially over. And Fortune Magazine's Jeff Birnbaum said, it's amazing how thorough the victory in Iraq really was in the broadest context. Bill Moyers asked the question, how did the mainstream press get it so wrong? Said Moyers, what the conservative media did was easy to fathom. They'd been cheerleaders for the White House from the beginning and were simply continuing to rally the public behind the president, no questions asked. How mainstream journalists suspended skepticism and scrutiny remains an issue of significance that the media has not satisfactorily explored. And I think we have to play for you a rather amazing clip from the special. The occasion is a George W. Bush press conference which took place on March 6th 2003, two weeks before the commencement of the war in Iraq. Moyers notes that at this point, the administration has been determined to link Iraq to 9-11 for months. Bush starts out noting that Iraq is part of the war on terror. Saddam Hussein and his weapons are a direct threat to this country. September the 11th, um, I should say to the American people that we're now a battlefield. At least a dozen times during this press conference, he will invoke 9-11 and Al-Qaeda to justify a preemptive attack on a country that has not attacked America. Mr. President, if you decide... But the White House press corps will ask no hard questions tonight about those claims. Listen to what the president says. This is a scripted... (laughs) Thank you, Mr. President. Scripted. Sure enough... The president's staff has given him a list of reporters to call on. Let's see here. Elizabeth. Gregory. April. 
Did you have a question or did I call upon you cold? I have a question. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure you do have a question. He sort of giggled and laughed, and the reporters sort of laughed. I don't know if it was out of embarrassment for him or embarrassment for them, because they still continued to play along. After his question was done, they all shot up their hands and pretended they had a chance of being called on. Mr. President, how was your faith guiding you? My faith uh, sustains me because I pray daily. I pray for guidance. And I think it just crystallized what was wrong with the press coverage during the run-up to war. I think they felt like the war was going to happen, and they, the best thing for them to do was to get out of the way. Now, you really have to see this video, because in it, as Bush says, this is a scripted, and he kind of nods down at the paper in front of him. Everyone laughs because, uh, well, he's admitting that he's going down a script. Did anyone call him on this back in, in, uh, in, in March of 2003? Well, no, they didn't. It, it's taken four years for Bill Moyers to put this out there. Bush is reading a script going down April. Did you have a question or, or did I call on you cold? And the reporter April answers, no, I have a question to laughter. B Bush then responds, okay, I'm sure you do have a question. Well, yeah, I mean, like... Why not nudge, nudge, wink, wink at the camera? Yeah, I'm sure that April has been given a question, a real hardball question. How is your faith guiding you, Mr. President? This administration has resorted to giving, you know, day pass credentials to a phony reporter to ask softball questions. Jeff Guckert, also known as Jeff Gannon, a male escort prostitute, who's sent in to ask softball questions. It is time to step back every so often and take a look at the Alice in Wonderland world of the current administration in Washington. Bill Moyers has done his usual excellent job, and we would refer you, dear listener, to his special on PBS, which we'll talk a little bit more about on next week's show. Let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. It is only a paper moon. Hanging over a cardboard seat But it wouldn't be make-believe If you believe in me It is only a canvas sky Sailing over a muslin tree But it wouldn't be make-believe If you believe in me Without your love It's a honky-tonk parade Without your love it's a melody played on a penny arcade It's a Barnum and Bailey world Just as phony as it can be But it wouldn't be make-believe if you believe in me 